All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you on this uh, chilly Sarasota Sunday. Uh, we're continuing our series <clears throat> on the book of Revelation. Um, this week, it's number, actually, it's number 37. Uh, I've entitled it Armageddon Celebration. What do you think of primarily when someone mentions the term or the word Armageddon? Is it uh, something that gives you like this ominous, unsettling reaction at first? Um, For most people, Armageddon has been assigned a flawed connotative meaning, much like we have done with the word apocalypse. If you remember in our very first message on the, on the book of Revelation, we explained that apocalypse is not, a, is not a word meaning the end of the world. It's actually a, a Greek word that means the revealing. And John calls it the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ. But many people use the word apocalypse to kind of s- symbolize this big catastrophe that might end humanity as we know it. But that's not what it is. It's the revelation. Apocalypse means revealing of Jesus. Similarly, most people use Armageddon as a metaphor for some cataclysmic, ominous clash between two opposing rivals. Like, for example, in sports, when two great teams are about to face off in a big game, people say, man, that is going to be a great game. What a great matchup. Two great teams. That's going to be Armageddon. The world uses the term sort of geopolitically, to describe the potential destruction that might come from a massive military conflict between powerful nations. Even people who aren't Christians say, man, that looks like it's going to be Armageddon. They think of it as a future global nuclear war or a massive military conflict that threatens global peace and economic prosperity. A war that has an outcome that is very much in the balance. A conflict that with tremendous Um, possibilities for destruction could go either way. And we hope when Armageddon happens that the good guys win. That's how the world looks at the word. Well, as we learn with the word apocalypse, the world doesn't understand what Armageddon really means. We learned last week that Armageddon is a symbolic Hebrew word standing for Mount Megiddo, which there is no such thing. Megiddo is a valley. So Armageddon is a symbolic Hebrew word. It is actually original to the book of Revelation. It doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture or anywhere else in any other literature beforehand. It started in the book of Revelation, Armageddon. It is a biblical, spiritual, theological concept. Armageddon isn't merely some future earthly war between two sides, an ominous battle whose outcome is in doubt. It is, in fact, Armageddon. The better way to think of it is an act of God. It is the day God uses his wrath to flush out, bring out of hiding all of the forces of wickedness into one place, into plain sight. It's something that could happen at any time. An event that the redeemed should hope for, long for, anticipate, not fear, dread, or hope never comes. Revelation chapter 16, verses 16 through 21. 
Then they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out from the temple, from the throne saying, it is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake. Have you heard that phrase before in Revelation? Let me give you a hint. Yes, you have. (laughs) Great thunder and an earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Remember the wine of God's wrath when we looked at the wine press? Every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. There's important history here for you to understand if you're going to interpret this passage about Armageddon correctly. It's about Exodus, Babel, and the great city. This passage has Old Testament words and phrases that John's readers would immediately recognize. The first one is the word hail. The second one is the word Babylon. And the third is this phrase, the great city. First of all, let's talk about Exodus hail. The seventh bowl of judgment, it is poured out at Armageddon, and it continues to borrow very heavily the symbolism from the story of Exodus in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. The Lord rained hail on Egypt, see? The Lord rained hail on Egypt. That's the first thing John's Jewish Christian readers would think of. I remember the plague of hail on Pharaoh. There was hail and fire and flashing continually. Doesn't that sound like thunder and lightning? In the midst of very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all of Egypt, both man and beast. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So that's pretty obvious. That hail would be a signal for them to go back to the story of Exodus. But then we see this this other thing, this, this tower of Babylon. When John's readers read God remembers Babylon in this passage, they would instinctively, John's first century Jewish Christian readers, they would say, oh, the great city, Babylon, that's the Tower of Babel. Let me explain why. The word Babel and the word Babylon are derived Hebrew word used for the word confusion. It's appropriate, isn't it? Remember, Babylon is full of people who are confused by deception from Satan. The Tower of Babel was another gathering of the rebellious inhabitants of the earth into one place, just like Armageddon. Do you see that? They all came together. Remember, look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. This is where John's readers would go back to when they see the word Babylon. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. In other words, let's come together as one power. Sound familiar? The Tower of Babel was this gathering of rebellious inhabitants, just like Armageddon. The purpose of their gathering was to build a tower that would unify all the inhabitants of the earth. And remember, whenever the scripture says inhabitants of the earth, it's another term for the wicked. They're not redeemed. They're not Christians. It's just inhabitants of the earth. They all wanted to come together as one force. God saw this and immediately caused all of them to speak different languages. Hence the idea of confusion. 
And instead of them coming together for unity, it turns into complete, utter chaos. Did you know the city of Babel, where the tower was built, would eventually become to be known as Babylon? It's the same city. Babel, Babylon, the great city. The term great city occurs several times in the Old Testament. It is always, whenever you see the term great city in the Old Testament, it's always either about a judgment event or a warning to people in a city to repent, to avoid judgment. One of the two. We learned about one of those in our series of Jonah. I hear there's a really great brand new book out on this, on the book of Jonah. I don't know, somewhere. But look, look what Jonah, look what, look, look what God told Jonah to do in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Here, the great city is a warning to repent. There are lots of other examples where the great city is a warning that judgment is coming and repentance, it's too late for it. John used the term great city earlier as a metaphor for the world system of government that opposes God's plan of redemption. Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. They're dead bodies. He's talking about the witnesses that represent the church taking the gospel. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That symbolically, and that word is actually in the text, symbolically. That symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt and where the Lord was crucified. So it's named three places. Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. That symbolic name... Okay, first of all, let me just say this, this debate, in the debate over whether Revelation should be read symbolically or literally, well, this sort of closes the argument, doesn't it? When John says symbolically. <laughs> the symbolic name of Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem, you know what it represents? It represents a trinity of evil tools that the dragon uses to control the world. Sodom represents the deception that leads to moral decadence and moral decay. Egypt represents the evil of the desire for the wicked to conquer and enslave the redeemed. Jerusalem represents idolatry and false religion and false teaching. So all three of these are sort of like the evil trinity of tools that the dragon uses. And that's what the great city in Revelation chapter 11 verse 8 represents. John's readers know that the great city is not about a specific place. They know that it is a symbol of the wicked world system at its peak, at its pinnacle. And we'll see references to the great city, this one, five more times in Revelation. That is in contrast to the true great city that we'll see at the end, New Jerusalem. Remember, the enemy always tries to give you a counterfeit of what is real. All right, so that's important history, right? You have to understand from John's reader's perspective, this is how they are, this is the lenses in which they're seeing this passage about Armageddon. Look at the spiritual section. What about God and what is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I'm just going to tell you, this, this battle is never in doubt. First of all, this phrase, God remembers Babylon. So that first beast if you guys remember way back to the study of the beast, the first beast represented by Babylon is deeply corrupt. And it seems this world system sometimes, it seems like as corrupt as it is and as loud as it is, sometimes it does seem like God doesn't do much about it, doesn't it? But let me just say something. What this passage tells us theologically, God will never forget what the wicked have done. 
those who are fully committed to hating him and his redeemed. Remember from last week, we, we defined for you the difference, and this was an important difference, between those who might struggle with sin and those who are in full commitment to wickedness. There's a difference, right? We are redeemed, we are Christians, but we, most of us, struggle with sin. Okay, all of us. That's different from those who are fully committed to wickedness. Those who are fully committed to wickedness, they are persistent in their rebellion. They are persistent in their wickedness. And instead of repentance at the threat of judgment, they rage against the idea that God would judge them in the first place. The wicked are so full of hatred for the story of redemption, they are drunk with rage, the scripture says, and they're drunk on the blood of the saints. You know, there's a reason that God waits. He's also, at the same time, he's remembering Babylon. He's also remembering his redeemed. He's patiently waiting for all of us to be safely preserved. Paul spelled it out for us. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? To make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Isn't that beautiful? That's why God is waiting to remember all the wickedness of Babylon. Because first he's remembering the redeemed who must be marked by the spirit of God. And once again, watch this connection. We keep bringing, matter of fact, Megan, when I was showing the slides this morning, Megan said, can't you come up with another verse to put up there? It's up there every week. I know, I can't help it. But watch this. Once again, this connection between the battle of Armageddon and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. That's Babylon. But gather the wheat into my barn. That's the redeemed. Do you see what's happening here? This unified, this is, this is what's so incredible about God's word, right? This is why I love, no matter what's going on in my week, I love studying this to bring it to you on a Sunday morning. This unified, complex connection. Just in these six verses, it's an incredibly complex connection between Babel and Babylon, Exodus, the wheat and the tares, and Armageddon all woven together. Chapters and chapters of the Bible woven together in six verses. Isn't it incredible? And it is a critical lesson for us. It's another example of the miraculous, unified narrative of a book written by dozens of different people over thousands of years. Yet it is beautifully complex and intricately connected and woven together. This beautiful complexity, it sets our Bible apart from all other books in human history. It's things like this that make the scripture this inexhaustible gift that we can treasure and study and dive into for a lifetime and never exhaust all the truth that is in it. So I'm not going to run out of things to say, basically, is what I'm trying to tell you. Another thing I want to show you theologically is how this, this seventh bowl, after Armageddon, after wicked is, the wicked are all gathered in one place, the seventh bowl is poured out into the air. <clears throat> this is significant. The first six bowls were poured out onto the earth to flush out those who inhabit it that are wicked. But this seventh bowl is poured out into the air. There's something different here. This bowl targets the realm of wickedness that controls the unredeemed who were targeted and flushed out by the first six bowls. 
Paul explains this as well in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, the inhabitants of the earth, the unredeemed. Isn't that cool? That's what this seventh bowl is doing. It is the judgment and the eradication of the architect of the great city and all the wickedness within it in this world. It targets the spiritual forces of evil deceptions that influence the wicked to gather foolishly together against the power of God. And once every facet of wickedness has been drawn out and exposed and gathered, the angel pours out the seventh bowl on all of it. And we see it described when this bowl is poured out as lightning, thunder, and earthquakes. John's description of the impact of this seventh bowl is another great lesson for you about how to read and interpret Revelation. Watch this. Armageddon is this same event that is actually described three prior times in the book of Revelation, each one from a different camera angle. I'm going to pull them out for you. We've already preached on these. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Obvious, right? Pretty undeniable. It's the same event. Revelation 8, 5. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It doesn't take like um, seminary rocket science to figure this out, right? <laughs> Look at the next one. Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. We saw that in chapter 15, didn't we? Now, the idea of the temple being opened. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. Hmm. It's pretty obvious, right, what this is. Look, we're going to study the aftermath of the seventh bowl in the next couple of weeks. But for today, I want you to see something. There is no escaping the seventh bowl. And the great city's fate is far worse than the fate of Nineveh, Babel, Sodom, Jericho, or idolatrous Jerusalem. And unlike Nineveh, this seventh bowl is not a call to repentance. Unlike Sodom, this is not a judgment that is targeted to cleansing wickedness just in one neighborhood. This is final judgment. That's why in the passage it says the seventh bowl was poured out and all of heaven said it is done. There's no tomorrow after the seventh bowl. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And any mountains, the scripture says, any mountains or islands that might have been used for refuge to hide from God, they're all removed. No one has access to them. And the inhabitants of earth are sitting ducks. Okay, what about us? What are we supposed to do with this? I, I, I titled this section, The Day That God Remembers. So this was the sermon preview this week. Armageddon will be the greatest worship service in church history. If I look back now, I would have edited it. Twitter doesn't let you edit it. It's so stupid, isn't it? Just let me edit. Just, I would have changed it to worship celebration. For many Christians, Armageddon can have this ominous, anxious feeling associated with it. But that's not or never was God's intention for introducing it to us in Revelation. Now, some of this ominous feeling starts with a flawed interpretation that all the nations of the world come together against Israel at the Valley of Megiddo. 
I mean, it is certainly is frightening if you think of Armageddon as the biggest earthly military conflict in world history. A massive future earthly battle where all the nations gather together in one place to destroy a Jewish nation. That's a very troubling thought. More on that later. But for the wicked, Armageddon will be a catastrophe. It will be a painful end to their world system that they are so dedicated and committed to, the world system that they worship, their whole lives are wrapped around. Now, some who claim to be followers of Jesus say, God is not going to remember and judge the world's wickedness. There is no Armageddon. In the end, everyone will be forgiven. God is not a God of judge. He's a God of love. They are all wrong. I mean, I don't know how you can read Revelation and say there's no judgment. I mean, you can just cut it out of the Bible if you want, but there's warnings about that at the end. <laughs> let you know. Church, God will remember. He won't forget. And one day, evil will pay for what it has done to his creation. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. We preached on this in our series on 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Doesn't that sound a little bit like God having to remember? Wait for the wheat to grow and then gather the wheat and the weeds together. God is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's talking about the redeemed, not the inhabitants of the earth. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Hmm, thunder. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, Armageddon. God is patiently holding back his act of Armageddon. Don't make his patience a mistake to think it's proof that judgment won't be coming. Big mistake. For us, dear Christian, this day is not an ominous geopolitical thermonuclear military event. Armageddon is far more than a human conflict. Armageddon is an act of God. It is the very eradication of every earthly spiritual enemy of righteousness. Armageddon is the day our God remembers everything the wicked have ever done, said, or thought. In the seventh bowl, in Armageddon will leave no stone unturned. That's another familiar phrase in Scripture, isn't it? Not one stone left upon another. Armageddon will expose and eradicate every drop and pebble of evil. So, with that in mind, what should our reaction to be, action be when we hear the word Armageddon? Remember that massive worship celebration in heaven we've read about in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7? <laughs> Chapter 11, chapter 15, chapter 16, and again soon in chapter 19. Oh, seven, interesting. Remember that? I pulled out my favorite one of all of those for you to read. Revelation chapter 7. Behold, I saw a great multitude no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We see this over and over again in Revelation. 
Each time this worship celebration is described, you know when it happens? It happens just prior to this same judgment event of thunder, lightning, earthquake. Remember the passage I showed you, thunder, lightning? Each one is preceded by a worship celebration. So while that moment, God remembers Babylon, that is evil's worst nightmare. But for us, it is the catalyst for our greatest celebration. Think of this, think of this. And I'm going to say something that might be a little bit controversial, maybe, I don't know, but think of this. If God were to forget or ignore the wickedness of Babylon, would he really be worthy of worship or celebration? If God never exposes all the works of evil and gathers them in one place and eradicates them, can he really be celebrated as our eternal king? If our God cannot be trusted to bring perfect justice upon the wicked, can he really be trusted with grace and mercy for the redeemed? I say no. But the fact is, our God will remember. He will judge evil. As a matter of fact, the fact that we know he will eradicate evil from this earth is one of the greatest, biggest reasons he is worthy of our worship and our celebration. This isn't human justice. It's true justice. It's righteous justice that we saw earlier on in chapter 16 that the angels in heaven declared the wicked deserve this. It's not like the justice we often try to carry out on the wicked. Remember the passage on the wine press? Remember I said, how foolish would it be for us to try to crush evil one grape at a time when God's just going to do it all in one big wine press and let him do it? Wouldn't that be better? Tell you what, instead of trying to crush one evil grape at a time in this world, obsessing over that, let's just wait for the Armageddon celebration, huh? Justice at Armageddon will be so stunning, it will inspire the single greatest expression of our gratitude, loyalty, and love and worship for our Redeemer that we could ever experience. We'll celebrate God's act of power, His righteousness, His faithfulness to do all that He has promised. All of that will be on display with this seventh bowl. We'll celebrate the moment he remembers Babylon the Great for all her wickedness over thousands of years and destroys the city. We'll celebrate the end of how Babylon has relentlessly over thousands of years expressed hate, hunted, attacked, and martyred the redeemed. We'll celebrate the exposure and the eradication of every deceptive political, spiritual, social lie and deception and false doctrine and the one behind them all. We'll celebrate the complete destruction of the great city, this entire world system that is corrupt to its core. We'll celebrate Armageddon as the greatest miracle of God second to the resurrection the redeemed have ever experienced. See, when you interpret Armageddon correctly, it's not something to worry about or dread or fear like the wicked will. It's a face-off 
but it's an event. Let me see if I can just help you shape it correctly. It's an event we should go to bed each night hoping we wake up to. Well, wouldn't that be a great Monday? I mean, seriously, wouldn't that be the best Monday ever? Wow. Monday morning, 5 a.m. It's Armageddon. Give me some coffee. I'm ready to watch. Praise you, God. Let's see this go down. <laughs> you know, church, listen to me. You don't, just like we see in Revelation, how these expressions of celebration happen before the judgment, you don't have to wait to that day to worship God for Armageddon. By faith, we can start here each week when we gather. Dear Jesus, we're not afraid of this face-off that you're going to have with evil. As a matter of fact, Lord, we hope that we wake up to it. Now, if we don't, we'll continue to be faithful, carrying the gospel, proclaiming it, as the two witnesses did, as the 144,000, symbolically, as us, as we're commanded to do in the Great Commission, we'll continue to serve you, love those around us, care for them, warn them about repentance, tell them about grace and mercy and redemption. And we'll do that, God, but we really look forward to that day when we have reason for the greatest celebration in church history. What a day that's going to be, Armageddon. And so because you have marked us and you have given us ears to hear the truth, Lord, help us begin to understand that this word, Armageddon, means celebration, not war. Thank you, Jesus. And until that day, by your spirit, by your word and by the people that we surround ourselves with, keep us faithful in proclaiming the gospel and bring us back here each week so that we can practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We love you guys. Have a great week.